Um, so here's the big Bible challenge. Find the book of Daniel in your Bible. We have three minutes. So you have plenty of time to find it. <laughs> plenty of time to flip to the front to the table of contents to find out where you can find it and then flip back. Past the middle. That's right. That's right. Past the Psalms. Past the, well, past the, yeah, past the Psalms. Past the middle. Daniel is technically put among, within our Protestant Bibles and um, put among the major prophets, but actually the um, the Jewish the Jewish Bibles will put Daniel in with the writings, along with the wisdom writings, so Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, which is kind of a fun fun fact there. So right after Ezekiel, everyone found it. You got it? Did you get it? Good. Good. Well, we're going to start a little bit early. Why not, right? Um, so let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for your word and your faithfulness to your people, um, the people of Israel and the new people of God and Jesus, to um, those of us who have been bought with his blood. We thank you for your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. And so we ask, Lord, now as we dig into your holy word, as we dig into this particular corner of scripture, we ask that you would open our eyes and ears, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, that we would um, see and know what you've done in the past and see and know and trust for what you're going to do in our lives today and in the future as individuals and as your body. So we ask all of this for your glory and we ask it in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. How many of you um, recall some of the events that happen in the book of Daniel? Anyone want to say some of the major things that you might recall from the book of Daniel? Really, There's some really big, flashy, dramatic stuff. Anybody remember? Fiery furnace. It's cool in the furnace, right? Yeah. Bah. Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, I know, the best king name ever, right? Yeah. Yeah, really cool king name. Anything else that you recall? Dreams. There's a lot of dreams. Gets really wacky. My sister um, gets really wacky. My younger sister in our family there, you know, you might recall in my family growing up, my, I have, I'm the third of four, and each one of us girls, I was number two of the girls, and each one of us girls had kind of a different thing that we would get into and when you have three daughters what you find is that the second daughter doesn't want to do the sport or the activity that the first daughter did because she doesn't want to ever have to be compared at it with her excellent older sister and so when it came to my third younger sister my older sister had gotten into art I had gotten into dance and into um, some other things I'd actually done a beauty pageant that was a horrible um, event that will be for another time, so stay tuned for, you, you can ask me about it later. My younger sister, she was very petite and adorable with bright red hair, and she got involved in modeling as a child model. Um, very, She just dipped her toes in, and then she decided it wasn't for her. She was very stubborn. But I will we'll never forget, because we, we teased her about it for the next 20 years, there was this one like fake commercial that she did, and she's not peppy. For all that petiteness and with her bright red hair, she's a little fire Cracker, but you don't think of her as being peppy. And she had to do this commercial where she said, it's wild, it's wacky, it's wonderful, 
And you could just see her rolling her eyes at, at having to say that while she was saying it. But that phrase, it's wild. It's wacky. It's wonderful. You can use those words about Daniel, right? Daniel itself is wild. There are wild things that happen in Daniel in the dreams and then also in reality. It's wacky. And we're going to see today just why is it wonderful. So when was Daniel written? We already had an idea about that. It was written from Babylon, we think, in, um, in the 6th century B.C., following the exile of the southern kingdom of Israel. If you recall, following um, David, not just David, but then Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel broke up. They had a big fight, and 11 of the tribes went north, or, and then Judah stayed in the south surrounding Jerusalem, right? And so um, that split into northern and southern kingdom. Um, was something that would characterize the future of Israel while they were still in the promised land. And what happened um, during, during this time, there were all of these major empires that kept coming through Israel. And if you look at Palestine, what you'd see is that Palestine in the Fertile Crescent, it's basically the highway. If you want to get anywhere from Mesopotamia to Egypt, which were the major um, cultural uh, mega mega cultures of that time, mega empires, you'd have to go right through Israel, right? And so poor little Israel was like, poor little Palestine was a lot like the Dutch, the, the lowlands that everyone passed through and conquered on their way to the bigger, more exciting places. And what we see in the 8th century in 721, the Syrians came in and captured Samaria and took away northern Israelites into, um, into exile back home with them. And then what we see at the end of, um, at the end of the 6th century in 597 BC, the Babylonians then came in and besieged, besieged Jerusalem. And we know that they took away some exiles in 605 BC, seven or eight years earlier. And then there were also waves of exiles being taken away. So we're reasonably certain Daniel was taken away earlier than that. He opens his book um, at 605 BC where he is um, there in Babylon. So that's about when we're looking at. That's, you know, um, more than 600 years before the birth of Christ. Well, the genre of the book of Daniel, again, it's wild, it's wacky, it's weird, it's wonderful. The genre is apocalyptic. An apocalyptic scripture is something where there's this unveiling. The word actually means a revealing, a revelation. That's why we call our final book of the Bible a revelation. So Daniel is the first example that we have, not just in scripture, but also throughout um, any other extra biblical texts of this kind of Jewish apocalyptic, which is more than just a prophecy. In the great prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, we see the Lord giving prophecies to Israel, not only about Israel's future, but also about the future of Israel's nearest neighbors, who were sometimes Israel's greatest enemies, those people that had betrayed Israel um, to greater world powers, things like that. You see in those books that there is a little bit of this discussion of the end times as far as what will happen with them, but it doesn't get as weird as it does in Daniel. Daniel gets really weird with some very interesting images that um, these images, the Lord uses these images in dreams, not just to Daniel, but also to these pagan kings like Nebuchadnezzar um, to, to really um, il illustrate what 
will happen at the end of time, at the end of human history, and then also in that mirror history in Daniel's lifetime and in the generations following Daniel. So we're going to talk, we're going to push all of that really interesting, interpretive, wacky mess to next week. So we're going to talk about that anymore <laughs> this week. So don't even ask me any questions about that. Um, but <laughs> the structure. So when we look at the book of Daniel, it's interesting. If you flip towards the end, you'll see how many chapters do you find. It's a symbolic number. I'll give you a hint about that. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, there are 12. What, what does that number signify for the people of Israel? Do you remember? Twelve tribes, that's right, and twelve sons of Jacob. Which I know. Isn't that funny how there's twelve disciples? It's like the Lord's trying to tell us something by saying that specific number. So that number was Yeah, and what else? Twelve hours and half a day, twelve months of the year. You're really thinking. I like that. I know, that's right. Twelve is a really important number. And it breaks down to three and four, the four winds, and then for us as Christians the the Trinity, Father, yeah. Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, and then it, and it also, if you divide it by two, breaks down to the number six, which if you put it three times, one ne- um, next to each other, that's the number of the beast. I know that's so that in I know and and we'll talk we'll, that that verges into the that's really good you're right and part of that is that the six is not complete like the twelve right that's why it's a bad number for the Israelites they're like no no let's not have six it's also six is um, seven was seen as being a perfect number a beautiful complete yeah. number as with twelve so six is not quite good enough in yeah. the mind of the Israelites but we're gonna see how. Um, we'll push that a little bit to next week. But we look at 12. That was so good. Thank you for your Bible math. That was really awesome. There are 12 chapters. In the first six chapters, what we see is that they're mainly narrative. They relay incidents that happened during Daniel's lifetime to him and to his friends. And then in chapter 7 through 12, we see four visions that come to Daniel in his old age. And these all overlap chronologically. What's interesting, too, and you might know that some Bible fun facts, is that this is one of the um, books of the Bible that's not written in Hebrew. Oh, it is written in Hebrew, but has another language besides Hebrew and Greek. And that is that some of it is written in Aramaic, which was the lingua franca, you know, the spoken language of that um, of those mega cultures during that time, both of the Assyrians and then also we know a little bit for Babylon. And so what you see is that Daniel is switching. It's as though he were living, um, say he were living in Germany. Um, actually, in Germany, they don't like to speak English, but they do all speak English. They just won't tell you about it, also like in France. But say he was living in one of these cultures where um, the first language that everyone knows, their native language, is not English, but everyone knows. English and learns English so that they can communicate, so that they can find a job, so that they can interact with other cultures. Well, that was exactly um, what Aramaic was. It was like English during that day and age. And so we see Daniel writing specifically in Hebrew at the beginning, and then he writes for a little bit in the middle in Aramaic as a way of opening up um, some of what he is experiencing and also some of the visions that he's seeing so that it's so clear that these visions are not just about Israel, but they're about the whole world. 
about people of all nations. And then he goes back like a little sandwich. uh, Hebrew is the bread and Aramaic is the meat. And he goes back to Hebrew towards the end of the the last four chapters. And so this Aramaic core to the book links chapters 1 through 6 that are all narrative and chapters 7 through 12 that are all wacky, wild, end times prophecies. So um, so that kind of, I love thinking about structure because it helps me hang my hat on some of what's going on. Helps me say, well, that's going on in there and that helps us understand why it's going on and what the Lord is saying through it. Some of the themes in the book involve um, Daniel's faithfulness under pressure. He's cool under pressure. He's dedicated to the Lord despite the threat of great persecution as are the other Jewish exiles there with him in Babylon. They would rather obey the Lord than earthly kings. And we see this come up over and over again. We're going to look at some specific examples today. But they would rather, it's not that they're disobedient and just simply rebellious against these earthly kings. Sometimes, um, as Christians or otherwise, we can we can sort of say, well, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and the Lord told me I'm going to do this, so I'm going to do it, so forget about you. And it's an excuse for kind of a willful individualism or a rebelliousness that won't receive any authority over us. And that is not at all what Daniel and his friends do. No, instead, Daniel and his friends, you see them obeying this pagan authority which would have been so hard for them to do. And yet they saw the Lord's hand in everything. They saw that the Lord was in control so that even though they were in exile, he would still be in control. Even though there was this pagan king who was telling them what to do, he was still in control. So it was very specific when they stuck to their guns, when they held their ground and did not obey the king. It was not the way they always operated. It was a one-time occurrence, very specific about staying um, faithful to the Lord, about obeying the Lord um, when there was a conflict between what the Lord told them to do and what their king told them to do. There's that faithfulness. Then what we see because generally of their obedience all of the time and their excellence in the world, again, a good um, rationale for going out and doing what you can do, being the best you can in your field of work. Because we see that Daniel and these other exiles, they excelled at what they were called to do. They really did well. And they did well in matters of public policy, in governing, in politics. In um, They grew in wisdom and intelligence and stature. And they were seen and recognized um, by the other cultures that they were in for all of this wonderful stuff that they did. And so in that excellence, the Lord endowed them with this excellence. And in that excellence, and because of that excellence, in juxtaposition with their faithfulness to serve the Lord, what the Lord did was he spoke to these pagan kings through Daniel and the others. And you see repeatedly throughout the book of Daniel that these pagan kings give glory to um, the Lord. They call him the Most High God. And they publish these wide decrees about the Lord's worthiness. Isn't that an amazing thing that these pagan kings would say they didn't get leave off on worshiping their own gods and they still make these really egregious mistakes in terms of idolatry. But they, they are nearing approaching belief in Yahweh as the one true God. So that's another theme that we see. And we'll talk about the major theme next week of revealing God's purposes for all humanity at the end of all time. But let's keep going, and we're going to talk about two major theological ideas 
and then we're going to dig in, we're going to read a couple passages and look at how those ideas are found in the passages. The first idea, by the way, I have this gorgeous lion on the screen just because it's gorgeous. This is, <laughs> how about that? Uh, I don't really have any videos. There aren't a lot of video. I wanted to show some YouTube stuff, but there's nothing on Babylon that's worth really watching when we could be studying scripture. So, um, but but isn't this gorgeous? This is a lion that was found on these painted tiles at the Ishtar Gate in Babylon, which is especially significant, as you might think, for um, the, the story of Daniel and the lion's den, which we're going to look at a little bit this morning. So a little visual break. But um, back to these two theological ideas, two ideas that I want you to keep in mind. And these are ideas that are helpful. You see them in Daniel, and they're also helpful for us today. This idea first that God is with us. And the second idea, God is for us. God is with us on the one hand, and God is for us. Um, I remember growing up watching Sesame Street. It was one of the very few approved television programs in our household. There was not a lot of TV. I mean, my parents... They said we couldn't afford cable, and now I know that that was a bold lie. <laughs> they were not going to get us cable. So we grew up on a lot of PBS and, um, and then just regular network TV. And they also told us, they also told us our house was robbed when I was um, six years old. They also told us that the robber stole the attachment cord between the video game console, the ancient Atari that we had, and the TV. Not that the video, because we saw the video game console. They were like, yeah, they didn't take it for some reason. They only took the attachment cord. I have still, they claim that that's actually true still to this day, and I don't think I don't think that's true. But uh, um, but I recall on Sesame Street, you know, those Muppets are so good at teaching children about the basics of life, and clearly some of it has still stuck with me. I'll never forget seeing these two Muppets run wildly back and forth towards the camera and away from the camera, towards the camera and away from a cam the camera, and they would say, near. And then they'd go way far, run, 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 <laughs> run, 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 and run, 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 back, uh, When we think about God, one thing we need to remember is both his nearness to us and then his farness from us. That farness of God, there's a fancy theological word for that, and we would call that transcendence. God is above all. The God who is the only true God who created the heavens and the earth and all his power and might and majesty and all his perfect holiness, he is also the one then who draws near to us in our brokenness, in our fleshliness, in our createdness. And we are um, fallen from that pinnacle of creation that he created us for. We've fallen from the dignity that he's given us um, and yet he comes down from that far the far reaches of heaven from the far reaches of his holiness he's involved and he cares about our lives he's involved he cares about us as a whole by coming to redeem us um, by being born as a baby in Bethlehem God shows that he though he's above all else though he um, doesn't need anything from us Though he is holy beyond all belief, yet he decides he, to humble himself to be born as a human being. Um, and so that um, incarnation of Jesus Christ is really the pinnacle of what we call the Emmanuel principle seen all throughout Scripture, which is this idea of God in all of his farness humbling himself and be, 
coming near to us, entering into fellowship with sinful and broken humanity. Um, you see it in the garden that the fellowship in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve and, and God is unbroken before they sin and before they fall. God walked in the cool of the garden. Imagine going on a walk with God, literally the holy um, one who created all of the earth and all the, and the heavens and everything going on a walk with you and just hanging out with you. And um, so that holiness of God then cannot be in the presence of human sin following the fall, not because he sneers at us, not because he disdains our brokenness, but because it's not safe for us. And that's that idea. You think of um, C.S. Lewis's Narnia books. If you've ever read those in C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, um, Aslan is a lion, this far beast, this majestic, kind of scary beast. Um, and uh, the line about Aslan is that he's good, but he's not safe. And God in his holiness is good, but he's not safe for us in our brokenness. And we see that in scripture where um, there is this idea of um, God's holiness in the temple where the high priest on the day of atonement has to have um, a rope tied around his foot so that if he somehow has unwittingly sinned and the sin was not atoned for and there he is in the presence of a holy God, the rope is so that they can drag his body out if he's struck down in the presence of the Lord. And that striking down is not seen as God being mean or mad at us for our sin. It's almost like this mathematical magnetic equation. Holiness and sinfulness. Holiness is going to clear out any kind of sinfulness, any kind of brokenness, any kind of destruction. And so God provides for his people so that we can continue to be in fellowship with him. And throughout the Old Testament, you see this providing for fellowship through um, God choosing Abraham, then Jacob and Judah, through bringing them out of slavery in Egypt and establishing worship in the tabernacle and then in the temple. All of those instructions about the tabernacle that God gives to Moses, they're about preserving and protecting the people of God um, in their sinfulness from God's own holiness, and then setting up a place where God and men and women could meet um, and have fellowship together. And so that um, joining together of God in his holiness and us in our brokenness is seen even in the Old Testament. One of the little fun facts about God's holiness and his presence, God being with us, that we see in, um, in the time of the second temple, which was the first century. Remember, right now, so... Um, the tabernacle was built. Then the temple was built when they got into Jerusalem. And Solomon, remember David's son, built the temple, which was really just a stonifying of the tabernacle, making it more solid, giving God a house in Jerusalem. Well, after the temple was destroyed, remember that the temple was destroyed when Jerusalem was besieged by the Babylonians. Uh, or, and then also, yeah, thank you, I need it. And then it was also destroyed again. The second temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. And so, but between that first and second destruction, what happened, they sent exiles back in the reign of King Cyrus to rebuild the temple. So following Daniel, they went back to rebuild the temple. And do you know what happened, though, when they rebuilt it? We see this in scripture in Jesus's day. Um, the glory of the Lord never returned to it. When Solomon built the temple and dedicated the temple, what he describes is that the glory of the Lord, the very presence of God in all of his holiness, came over the temple and rested on the temple. The presence of the Lord was so visible, even tangible, like um, a thick veil, a cloud of holiness, 
like the cloud that followed the tabernacle and followed the Israelites in the desert. And that glory is called the Shekinah, the glory of God. And that glory of God never returned to the temple when it was rebuilt following the exile in Babylon. And so the Israelites in Jesus' day were longing. They were waiting and watching and saying, Lord, how long will you return to fellowship with us? We know we've sinned. When will you forgive us our sins and return into fellowship with us? And so when John in his gospel says about Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of an only son from the father full of grace and truth and grace and truth that verse right there john in that verse is telling us all of you that have been waiting and longing <coughs> for the return of the presence of the lord you can stop looking around because here it is the lord is present in jesus christ he is as a vessel um, where he is God himself in all of his holiness and he's intended the holiness of God, the Shekinah glory of God intended within the flesh of Jesus Christ. Not to say that his flesh and his spirit are so divided that they're not unified the way ours are, but rather simply that God now once again is dwelling with men and women, even in our sinfulness, and that that dwelling will change everything forever. Now, um, the temple, the new temple is in Jesus Christ. Now I am with you, as the Lord says, in a new way. And the Lord said, I am with you. This is that God with us, that idea of his transcendence and his imminence. This Emmanuel principle, it's all throughout scripture, um, but it is come to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In him, God is with us in a new way. And in him, our sins, of course, are atoned for. And that's about how God is for us. And so we can be with him and we will be with him eternally. Okay, I'm going to take a breath. <laughs> Any questions about that, about that idea of the word being made flesh of God in all his glory dwelling in that one verse too, there's the word dwelt literally means tabernacled, that God himself took on a tent of flesh. God himself is made flesh. Okay, so why does it matter that God is with us? God is with us, and so we need not fear, no matter what happens to us in this life. Um, God is with us, sitting side by side with us. Our sin is no longer a barrier to fellowship in Jesus Christ. And so God is right with us, no matter what we're going through. Um, God is with us, and so the bottom line is do not fear. There's nothing to be afraid of, even though the circumstances in our lives are out of our control. God is with us, but God is with us. I uh, owe this to Frank Limehouse. He said, um, what does it matter if God is with us if he's not for us? And there's this idea, a lot of people want to say, oh, God is with you, it's okay. God is with you. He's entering into your suffering with you. He's entering into your heartache. He's entering into your grief, your loss, your problem with you. He'll be with you in it. Well, what does that matter if he hasn't triumphed over it and hasn't overcome it? What does it matter if God is in is weak with us, sitting with us in our pain and suffering, if he's not also victorious over it? If he doesn't also have that transcendence and the power to overcome the suffering and the sin and the heartache in this life? And so that's where God being for us is so important. Because if Jesus is just with us, entering into our world, but not overcoming it, then it uh, then we're still lost. 
But no, in fact, scripture tells us that God intervenes from outside of us to save us once and for all at the beginning of our walk with him, once and for all when we receive his death for us and say, I believe, forgive me from my sins. Um, But then also that grace coming from outside of us is something that happens for us again and again and again as Christians. We don't just have grace at the beginning of our Christian life and then um, and then it's all right, you're on your own now. Is it? God's uh, mercies are new to us every morning. And so that idea of God's mercy is being new to us every morning. We hear that in Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. When we look back to the cross in human history, to that point in human history, when we look back to the moment of our conversion where we first said the cross is for me, what we're doing is we're receiving again that forgiveness. We're receiving again that um, favor from God undeservedly from outside of ourselves, breaking in, um, being spoken over us in love, and that forgiveness transforms us. And then today, with whatever you're facing, you can trust that because of the forgiveness of sins, because of Jesus' own resurrection from the dead, God will be at the last day victorious over all sin, suffering, death, dying, heartache, loss, all of those things in this life that we would say are bad and that we can't control. The things that we find ourselves in the midst of and we say, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know what are you, and if we're really on it, we can say, all right, God, what are you going to do about this? How are you going to fix this? Because I have no idea how it's going to happen. Well, there we can trust that God is for us. He who has not counted our sins against us will also be um, for us in the end when it comes to sin and suffering. All right. You know, what in the world does that have to do with Daniel? Well, getting back to Daniel, there are a couple of different incidents in Daniel. If you're open to, um, if you've opened to Daniel one at the very beginning, what you'll see is that um, when Daniel was and others of Israel were taken into Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, what he did was he wanted to pick all of the best young men from Israel, and he wanted them to be in his council. He wanted them to advise him, which is good. So he was going to train them up, and his idea of training them up was very holistic, which is kind of interesting. He thought, well, they're not just going to learn all about Babylon and all about everything they could possibly learn about. I'm also going to feed them the best food from my table. I'm going to feed them all of the best meat, all of the best wine, all of the best fatty things that we can possibly find. And um, so that proved to be a crisis of conscience for Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. And those three friends, their names are changed um, to, their Babylonian names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So we'll hear from them a little bit later as well. But what we read about, if you were to just look at verses 8 through 21, what we're going to find is that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. 
he knew that he couldn't eat that food or drink that drink because it was against the kosher laws of Israel. So he's worried about it. What do you do? Is this one of those places where you say, okay, I'm going to keep my head down? He clearly prayed about it. He decided, no, I really need to obey the Lord over the king. But he's praying about it. And in verse 9, it says, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the, in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. This favor comes from outside of Daniel. God blesses him in this moment, gives him this favor, and it turns out that he doesn't have to disobey kosher law in order to obey the king. Daniel and his three friends receive favor from the king miraculously. The, the Lord moves the king, Nebuchadnezzar. And then what, it, what ends up happening is that the Lord gives these four youths in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. What we find out is that these four are so much better than all the other youths, even though all they're eating is vegetables and all they're drinking is water. Um, and so the Lord takes them, makes them even better than they are for his glory and his purposes so that he can work through them to minister to these pagan kings in Babylon and maybe bring some people who aren't even Israelites to believe in Yahweh. Any thoughts about that rebellious eating and God's favor to them in the midst of it? It's a gift from outside of them. Isn't that what grace is and favor? A gift undeservedly from outside of us. And that's exactly what he gives to Daniel and these three famous young men. Well, the next thing in chapter 2 um, the, the king, very stubbornly, King Nebuchadnezzar, if you go home and read all of Daniel, it's very entertaining. Nebuchadnezzar is, he's just really funny, I think. He just keeps doing really funny things. Um, but one of the funny things that he does is that he very stubbornly, has, well, he has this dream, and he very stubbornly tells all of his dream interpreters, all of these magicians and other wise men in Babylon, he says, all right, I don't want you to give me the interpretation to my dream unless you can also tell me what my dream was. I don't know if any of you have ever been tempted to pick up a horoscope. Surely none of you have ever looked at what they write down for the horoscope. But if you look, if you know which one is yours, I think it's all bunk. But I find it very entertaining to read them and just kind of laugh. So if you've ever read them, what's really funny is definitely read all of them. Because then what you'll say, one of them you'll be like, yeah, yeah, that's for me. Yeah, that's definitely for me. And then you'll read the next one and you'll say, yeah, yeah, that's really for me. That's about me as well. You'll read all, however many there are, and you'll say, yeah, that's about me. Yeah, that's really about me. With this kind of um, dream interpretation, those magicians were always telling the king what he wanted to hear. And we see this with the kings of Israel as well, with the prophets of the Lord in the Old Testament. They're in danger. False prophets are in danger of just making something up because it's their job to tell the king what things mean. So they're in danger of just making something up. And if you're going to make something up, you might as well make up something that benefits you, right? That keeps your tail safe, right? That protects you and hides you. And so Nebuchadnezzar very wisely says, no, 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 no. You're not going to tell me what the dream means. I'm not going to have a Rorschach test being given on what this dream means. You're going to tell me what the dream was first. And then he um, is kind of draconian in his response. He says that he will, he will kill all of the magicians unless they tell him what someone can tell him what the dream is. So Daniel knows that this is a problem. Daniel knows that they're all in trouble, not just him, but his three friends. 
And so Daniel prays to the Lord and he gets the three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to pray as well. And um, Daniel tells them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And of course, what does the Lord do? But he shows Daniel what dream he gave to Nebuchadnezzar. And then he also tells him the interpretation. And when the king marvels, what does Daniel tell him? But in verse 30, Daniel says, But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have had more than all the living, but in order that the interpretations might be known to the king and that you might know the thoughts of your mind. Um, Daniel knows that the grace given to him, the skill given to him is for God's purpose and so that these pagans would believe in Yahweh as the one true God. Okay, I'm going to take one more breath. Look at chapter 3. There we get, um, is there a musical where it's like there's a song that says it's cool in the furnace? I think there's, I think it's only a Bible school musical, but it's, it's lodged itself in my brain. So there's this little jingle going on in my head that says, it's cool in the furnace. And that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say. Remember, they got thrown into the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar, even after Daniel interpreted his dream and told him the dream, he said, wow, the Lord's incredibly, incredibly awesome. Um, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. What does he do in the next chapter? But he tells all of the land that they have to worship this giant golden image that he's set up. So he doesn't really believe in Yahweh alone. He's, the Lord's still working on him. And he threatens that if anyone does not worship this um, image that he's set up, this idol, then they'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. He says, if you do not worship, in verse 15, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Sounds like a challenge, doesn't it? A challenge to the Lord. Um, well, uh, then when Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel hear this, of course they're not going to bow down and worship this idol. That would be far worse than breaking the kosher laws. That would be um, idolatry. And so uh, they stick to their guns. They refuse to worship this idol that's been set up. And they say, um, our God, in verse 17, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. That took a lot of courage. That probably took a lot of prayer to be able to come to that point, to be so bold as to say that to the king who holds your life in his hand. And what they do, they bind them, they stoke the fire, and they go to throw the three men into the fiery furnace. And when they do that, it's so hot that the men who are throwing the three men into the fiery furnace get burned as well, and they die. They throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. And then um, in verse 24, they say, wait a second, what's going on? Why are they not dying? Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered, and, or he asked them that. They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Their God is with them in the fiery furnace, in the flames, 
in the midst of their potential destruction, and they are protected miraculously. The miracle is the part where God is for us. The miracle is God breaking in from outside of the natural world, doing the impossible on behalf of those whom he loves. Um, And um, so he is so palpably, so tangibly there with them, there also for them, fighting on their behalf, protecting them. Um, And so I don't know what the fiery furnace is in your life. Um, There is bound to be something. Um, There's bound to be something. And if you're like me, you think, oh, well, it's not that bad. Other people have lots of things to deal with. I'm often a comparer. And if I can just compare on the news, I think, well, I have my life is not in, in under danger, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or like others today in the Middle East, especially where their lives are being threatened because they believe in the Lord. Uh, the troubles and the trials that the Lord has sent me are not that bad. Surely I could handle it. Surely I can just buck up and deal with it. Um, but I think, you know, someone says, have you ever had this phrase being told to you when you were in trouble, when you were suffering somehow? Oh, God never gives us more than we can handle. I hate that phrase. <laughs> Don't listen to that phrase. That is not true. God very often gives us far more than we can handle, but he never gives us more than he can handle. And so this idea, when we find ourselves in the fiery furnace, when we say, I have no idea how this is going to work out, we can trust that the God who was there, who sent his messenger there into the fiery furnace to be with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to save them from the fire, to be for them, is also with us and for us as well. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to say one more thing, too, you can do when you go home. Is if you want to read Daniel in the Lion's Den, chapter 6, you'll be able to look for yourself, and you'll be able to see where is God with Daniel there, and how is God for Daniel there as well. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for your life by which God has drawn near to us. We thank you for your death by which God has redeemed us, has been for us in lifting us out of our sin, forgiving us, healing us, restoring us. And we thank you, Lord, that you have not forgotten us, that you will come back, that one day um, all heaven and earth will be restored. One day every tear will be wiped away. And so today, as we labor on, as we keep on walking one foot in front of the other, we ask, Lord, that you would manifest yourself palpably to us, encourage us, strengthen us, Speak to us of your great love for us and uh, work on our behalf, Uh, work on our behalf beyond what we can do. Lord, we know that what we're facing is not too much for you. So we ask all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.